Hey everyone, welcome to episode 26, part 2 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We really want to thank everyone for their responses to part 1, and we really are so proud of all the research that we do and the time we put into each episode. It's really nice to see that our listeners are appreciating it too, because it definitely takes a long time. Thank you for everyone who wrote to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And thanks for everyone who's donating on Patreon. We have our Patreon thank yous and shout outs at the end of this episode. And as always, if you want to find us on social media, you can on all platforms as True Crime Couple. Please, if you're enjoying this show, subscribe and review to us on iTunes or any other podcast platform that you're using. If you're feeling generous and want to, and want to help us bring you the best podcast possible, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash Couple. All right, let's get into part two of the White House Farm Family Murders. Last week, we discussed the background of the Bamber family. We told you that June and Neville Bamber, unable to have children of their own, adopted Sheila and Jeremy. Up to the point of the murders, Sheila has had a long battle with mental illness and keeping custody and relationship with her young twin boys. Jeremy, who was described as a ladies' man, likes to go out a lot, had a really rough childhood at the boarding school that he was sent to. The Bambers, who were very wealthy because of their farm and the ownership of a caravan park, provided many things for their children. On the night of August 6, 1985, Jeremy went over to his parents' house to have dinner with them, and Sheila, who was visiting for the week with her twin boys. By Jeremy's account, the night was uneventful, except for the fact that his parents asked Sheila if she would consider using daytime foster care for her boys. After Jeremy leaves and returns home, he gets a panicked phone call from his father in the early morning hours of August 7th. He stated that Sheila had gone berserk and had his guns. Where we left off, police, after wanting to wait for the daylight, finally had breached the back door of the Bamber family home just before 8 a.m. And inside were the bodies of Neville, June, and Sheila Bamber, as well as Sheila's twin six-year-old boys, Daniel and Nicholas. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Upon entry into the house, which led the police into the kitchen, it immediately appeared as if there was a struggle. Furniture was overturned, items in the kitchen were broken, the phone lie on the ground, off the hook, surrounded by shell casings from a twenty-two rifle. Neville was also in the kitchen. His body was laying over a chair which was knocked over into the fireplace. Neville had a total of eight gunshot wounds. Six of the eight shots had been to his head and face from a point-blank range. It seems the body shots, which were two to his right side that Neville received, were taken from several feet away. When analyzing the wounds on the body, all of the members of the family and the location of all the shell casings, the police pieced together that Neville had been shot four times upstairs where the other bodies were found, but that he had survived and managed to get down the stairs where an additional struggle took place and this is where the other four shots were taken. 
In addition to the gunshot wounds, it was clear that Neville had been involved in a violent struggle, as he had sustained many injuries. His lip was cut, he had a fractured jaw, and his teeth and larynx were badly damaged. He also had bruising on his cheeks and forearm. More specifically, he had bruising of the left wrist and forearm and three circular burn marks to his back. And some people believe that this is from the rifle, either from the rifle getting hot from the firing and then being pressed to his back, or possibly being end of the rifle being placed in the fireplace. What about... And then pressed against his back. What about like a... It, it's not like a cigarette burn though, right? Um, they said that it matches the shape of the, the rifle. Of the rifle barrel? Yeah. Okay. Neville also sustained black eyes, a broken nose, and lacerations to the head. These wounds coincide with being hit with a blunt object, most likely the butt of the rifle. So it seems like they had a... Neville had a rough struggle with the attacker. Right. I mean, I mean, which would make sense. I mean, I mean... But to survive, four shots upstairs and then four downstairs, that's, well, that's a lot. I'm not a, a gun expert, but it was a twenty two caliber rifle, mm-hmm. so... A twenty-two caliber round is very small, and it doesn't really do a lot of damage on entry. But what it does is, when it goes in, it it kind of bounces like within your body. Okay. And that's they actually say that the twenty-two caliber round is one of the most dangerous rounds because it pretty much scrambles anything that's inside. Oh. So like. So he would have probably died from those right. ones upstairs. So like, I mean. If he got shot four times, he was probably still able to function, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds. Right, because he had a total of eight gunshot wounds. Right, so like your entry wounds aren't bad, and you could probably survive for a little while. It's the point blank to the face, that problem. True, which it's it's crazy, because like, there's been accounts of people getting shot with like 9mm, let's say, and it and it, people survive gunshots to the head. But a twenty two, if it goes into your head or face or whatever, it... Just it does the most damage out of any caliber round to that area of the body. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that like the person that did this attack on Neville had to have been familiar with guns, first of all. Yeah. To take to take the shots because um it later it will be revealed, but the gun has to be reloaded. So they have to at least know how to reload this weapon. I would yeah, I guess you could say you would have to be proficient. You wouldn't have to be a good aim because we're going to see with all of these bodies that it's it's point blank. Yeah, if they're post point blank shots, I mean... You don't really need no. aiming. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but we have to also remember that Neville's kind of a big guy. He's 6'4", and by all accounts, he was still pretty active and physically fit. So we have to keep that in mind as to who the attacker is going to be. Some people will make the argument that couldn't have been a woman because of his size. But if he's already been shot so many times, I mean, I don't think that size really plays a factor into it. I mean, I mean if he had black eyes and bruising... Well, from the butt of the rifle, Right, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I mean, if it was from the butt of the rifle, I mean, pretty much a man or a woman could really inflict that. Yeah, I mean, especially if someone's been shot a couple of times. Right. I mean, if it was if if there was no object used and it was just like a physical like bl- like blunt fist, then I could say okay, maybe it's not a woman. Or, yeah. I, you know, but I mean, if it could be male or female, especially because it's it seems like the rifle was the object used in the yeah, attack. and it's not hard to just take the gun and whip somebody with it. Right. You know. 
So as the police move through the house, they come across the body of June in the upstairs hallway, lying just past the door of the master bedroom wearing her nightdress. June had been shot seven times. She was shot through her lower neck several times, right forearm, in her forehead, and between her eyes at point-blank range. So someone put the gun right to her forehead and just pulled the trigger. I mean, that's pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, let's go through the whole thing. And then I think it's always important to focus on what people seem to sustain the most damage. I think right. that's the most. Because that's where, like, your keepies. anger is kind of focused on. Right, you know? your intended target. Yeah, exactly. So police were able to determine that because of blood spatter patterns on her clothing and on the walls, that for some parts of the attack, she had been sitting up, possibly on her bed. So there were also two injuries to the right side of her chest and the knee of her right leg. Sheila was found just beyond that of the body of her mother, on the floor of the master bedroom. Beside her was the family Bible with blood on it. Symbolic? Much? Yeah. That's gonna... We'll talk about that later. She, just like her mother, was barefoot and wearing only her nightgown. Sheila had been shot twice, both times in her chin. The lower gunshot wound was closer to her throat. The pathologist is going to later explain that the lower shot, the one towards her throat, was most likely the first shot taken from about three inches away. He explained that from the blood spatter, Sheila was most likely sitting up when this and the other injury occurred. The first shot, the lower one, would not have killed her right away and would have caused bleeding internally and down her neck. The pathologist stated that Sheila most likely would have been able to walk around after sustaining this injury. However, due to lack of blood on her nightgown, evidence points to the fact that that didn't happen. Much rather, the second shot happened right away. And the bullet wound that's right below her chin and pointed upwards reveals that the barrel was pushed up against her skin. So he stated that this would have instantly killed her. So the two theories of this case is that someone else committed this murder, someone else killed the family, or that Sheila, in her um, distress, killed the family and then herself. So those are the two theories. I mean, I could see both of those theories. You know, it's it's kind of funny. Um, <clears throat> Just to kind of go back to, like, all of the gunshots, yes, you would have to reload that gun. But I have this, like, I, it's not a, I don't want to get into my theories yet, but I just want to make a comment on mm -hmm. this. There were so many shots fired that I want to say that, I mean, unless I could be proved wrong otherwise, that some of these shots might have been done post-mortem. Post-mortem. Post yeah. Because you would have to reload that gun. I don't know how many shots it would have, but let's just say it had, like, eight rounds. The the father alone got shot four well, times. Well, the pathologist is going to say that the, the shots were all taken in succession. So one after the other. So because of the bleeding that we see from the wounds, that the person would have had to have been just died because of the okay. pumping and the fact that the blood wasn't congealed. But you, know, you get what I'm saying. No, I get what you're like, saying. I mean, if he had, I mean, he or it's she. It's overkill. Yes, but he or she would have had to reload the gun and there were so many shots fired. I almost, I get this picture like he, he or she shot a few times, reloaded the gun, went back and just shot a few more shots no, into everybody. No, because the way we can tell with the blood flow from the bullet wounds was that right, they were all done at the same time. It's very time. possible that they, 
the victims here didn't die right away, which was stated that That's Sheila true. didn't die like right maybe away. Maybe their blood was still pumping. You know what I'm trying to say? Like they were laying yeah. there kind of like fucked and they couldn't do anything. Well, it is quite interesting because it's the same thing that we see over and over again with these mass murders of families. How did one person overpower so many people? So it is quite interesting as to how this could go down, but it always points to the fact that a family is trying to subdue the person that's attacking them because they know them. And that's why you don't see this, like, attack on this person. Right. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So getting back to Sheila's body, there were absolutely no marks on her body that would indicate that she was involved with this struggle. It was clear that Sheila was the last one to die because of the murder weapon. It was lying right next to her. And it's also important to note that the rifle did not have a silencer attached. An interesting aside is that Sheila's body was still actively bleeding when the police arrived. This comes from the testimony of several police officers who were part of the task force that just went in. This is weird because the other bodies had stopped bleeding hours prior as they had been dead long enough for their bodies to stop bleeding as their blood would have coagulated. So that's pretty interesting because the police we know didn't enter until the next morning, around 8 a.m. Right. So the fact that Sheila's was Sheila was still bleeding, actively bleeding, mm-hmm. means that she must have died pretty early. Right. Because well, there's several ideas that people have. Um, they're saying that the weapon the rifle used actually has a very a very quiet sound when it fires. It's it sounds more like a clapping than it does like a right. big shot. Well, it also doesn't generate a lot of energy. It's only a twenty two caliber rifle. So, could Sheila have taken that shot and the police didn't hear it from outside when she committed suicide? I doubt that because even though it's not a loud shot. Mm-hmm. You would still hear it. Yeah. You could still hear it. I think it's also interesting, and this goes two ways, that Neville was shot eight times and June was shot seven times, but Sheila was only shot twice. Right. In a way uh, that you could commit suicide. And it is 100% possible to commit suicide with this rifle. I mean, this is the thing. I guarantee you, I mean, first of all, length of the barrel plays a big role because if the barrel is long... Well, someone actually using the same rifle, if anyone's curious, it's up on YouTube, they uh, attempted it, and it's 100% possible. That's what I mean. Like, if there's two shots taken, like, I mean, if the barrel's, like, not long, and, and then it can be done. pressed up against It's possible. Chin. Maybe she shot herself once, like, mm-hmm. contemplated suicide. That's why her body was still bleeding. Probably right. contemplated it for a little while. Took the shot. Like, took realize, it a lot after. <laughs> realize that she's not going to die from this wound right away. Right. And then shoots again. And then that ends it. Mm-hmm. Which would make sense. Yeah. But I'm telling you... Especially with the Bible next to her. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this for a fact. Like, like that gun is loud enough to make a noise like where you would hear it. Okay. If the cops were outside the house. Right. You know, that would make sense. But, like, even a silenced weapon... I know a lot of people think, oh, it's silenced, you don't hear anything. But the truth of the matter is... You still do. It's just very, very light. It's like more, muted. Yeah, like you'll hear it. Like um, certain silencers can like mute sounds up to like three, uh, thir- uh, maybe like thirty yards to give people perspective. Okay. Like, you won't hear a shot until like you're within thirty yards. 
And anything okay, outside of that, usually saying. you can you hear know, something yeah, happening. They base it like 30, 60, and 90 yards. Okay. And that's so, like, that's kind of like how a silencer would work. So, you for certain guns, you would hear it within 30 yards or 60 yards or 90 yards. So, okay. they, the cops definitely heard a shot would if have it happened. Heard, even yeah. if the silencer was on. Even if the silencer was on, they would have heard it because they're outside the house. Yeah. Okay. But the other side is that even that maybe somebody that committed the crime and knew about Sheila's mental illness wanted to place the blame on her so they staged it to look like a suicide so we could go one way or the other with this evidence but we're going to get more into it when we talk about our theories and different possibilities and layouts of what could have happened with the case boys were found in Sheila's old bedroom Daniel had been shot five times in the back of the head while he was in bed one of those shots was taken from two feet away and the other four were taken from only a foot away. Nicholas was shot three times from the same distance away. He was also still in bed. To me, that is overkill with the boys. And I feel like there had to have been some aggression there. I agree. I mean, I mean, you could say there was aggression for the whole family. I mean, Yes, yeah, but like when it comes to like killing children, I, you know, usually... What you see when it comes to, like, family attacks, like we've seen with Felisca and um, even, like, the, the bodies found at the Jameson family, it's just one shot to the kids. You know what I'm saying? I think that... that five shots to I the head at is, one... Four shots, one foot away. I mean, I think this is, like... I'm not even going to say this is personal. This is more... For at least the children. I think for that, for them, it's more like... A, they want to make sure they're dead, number one. Number two, it's just like uh, you're, you're fear not fearful, but like you're nervous and you're taking these shots of being nervous because you're killing a child. I, at least that's my oh my, opinion. Yeah, that's it's just, it's insane. Because like, I feel like it's a whole different ballgame when you want to, if you kill an adult compared to a child that hasn't done anything Yeah, like there, wrong. you think there's more emotionality to it. So I, it's just I think like so, a, yeah. Yeah. It kind of like, you know, it's clouding judgment. Like someone uh. would have to build up a... To, to actually get themselves the to, to do, do that. that yeah. yeah, and I think that's all out of anxiety and yeah, being which, afraid. I, yeah, I, I don't know. it's interesting. So, now, because of the phone calls to the police and her mental health issues, Sheila was the main suspect in what police thought was a murder-suicide in the Essex countryside. And that makes the most sense. We're seeing um, eight shots with Neville, seven shots with June. Daniel's been shot five times. And Nicholas was shot three times. And then Sheila was only twice. And it, it looked like suicide wounds, especially because the rifle is next to her. Now, what we see happen next is a problem that occurs when police believe that they know exactly what took place at a crime scene. Also, this is the result of it being 1985, a time when DNA evidence wasn't something that even a television viewer would know to collect from the crime scene, like we do today. So, of course, once the police entered the house, the scene was not secured, and police, wearing their boots with no restrictions on how many men were allowed in, walked through the crime scene all day, bringing in pieces of the outside and accumulating what could have been evidence at the bottom of their own shoes and bringing it outside. Why does this happen all the time? It, it does. Is this like a thing where like up until like the 90s, 
until like, like CIS. Yeah, like came seriously, out. like what what the fuck? Like put some little booties on or something. Like Well, I think that they thought they knew what the case was, that it was a murder suicide, so there was no evidence to collect because Jeremy Bamber was outside saying, My sister has mental health issues, my father called um, she'd gone berserk. She has the gun. So they thought they knew what the issue was. Which, and yeah, I mean, I, once I, they I went in, they I, knew there wasn't yeah. a standoff. You, you kind of just. Right. I mean, I understand that completely. Yeah. I, I mean, wait, I time was... out, guys. Sorry if you hear music from our neighbors. Oh, yeah. Uh, I got a Drake concert next door. Sorry, right now. sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, sorry, keep going. I, all I was going to say is just like, I understand what you're saying about the mental health and how it all lines up, which it could possibly be it, right? I'm just mm-hmm. saying that. As a, as a police officer, I feel like cover all the bases here, yeah. just in case. It's also, um, it's a good song. Yeah, it's a good song. So it's probably also just the fact that nothing like this had ever happened before in this area. They'd never dealt with something as massive as this. And I don't think that they truly understood in that moment when they were processing the crime scene what this case would become. Right. So that's why I think the proper precautions weren't taken because, you know, the training probably wasn't there. But also, we know stuff about DNA evidence that they didn't know in 1985. Nobody knew so in 1985. So to us, it's like, oh my God, that's so ridiculous. But DNA wasn't even a thought process in their minds. So that's why they didn't think to collect it. That's why they didn't right. think to preserve. And it has nothing to do with, like, this specific police force no it's That's everyone in 1985 right so the murder weapon was removed from the scene without use of gloves and it wasn't tested for fingerprints until two and a half weeks after the murder took place see my problem isn't the process that the police went through but it's the time that it took in between testing for evidence you'll say and only three days after the murder took place the extended Bamber family was given keys back to the White House farm. To make matters worse, the police, to spare the feelings of the Bamber family, who were going to be given the keys back shortly, burned all of the bedding and carpets that were stained with blood. Well, I'm sorry, the family? The police. Oh, the police, I'm sorry. Burned the carpets and the bedding to spare the feelings so the family wouldn't have to see it. So you're burning all the evidence, pretty much? Yeah, it's... Collect it, bring it to the <laughs> evidence locker. I mean, it locker. doesn't even take a lot. I mean, we all would, I guess I keep thinking it like it's 2018, but yeah. it wouldn't take a lot to just swab a little bit of blood off something. No. But. And to move further along for just one second, only in regards to evidence, Jeremy's clothes were not collected until a month after the murders. The Bible that was found next to Sheila was not tested, ever. And 10 years after the crime, all blood evidence that was collected was destroyed. Wow. To everyone, it appeared that this tragic incident occurred because Sheila had a violent episode again. However, the story seems to take a different direction after the autopsy of her body is completed. Through analysis of Sheila's blood and urine, it was determined that she had like we know because she had been getting injections, an antipsychotic drug called Halperdol in her system. It also revealed that several days prior to the murder that she had used cannabis. So she was rolling up? She, so it's just a side note here. We know that 
medication was being taken because she received monthly injections. So that's something that we don't have to speculate about. We know for a fact that Sheila had the antipsychotic drug at proper doses in her system. So she wasn't just going through an episode of not taking her pills. In fact, Sheila was smoking pot with her medication. And we looked up the kind of side effects that this may have. And it seems like pharmaceutical experts have come to a consensus that pot will increase the effects of an antipsychotic drug. For example, if you are drowsy, taking an antipsychotic drug, which makes sense because really that drug is, is a tranquilizer of sorts, pot will cause excessive sedation, slower motor skills, reduced cognitive function, and confusion. To me, that doesn't sound like this combo of drugs would cause a murder spree. More the opposite. You know what I mean? It would make her not be able to... To physically do that. Or carry Fight out back. a violent act. <laughs> right. But then the accounts of Sheila the day of and the few days prior is that she was acting completely normal. So maybe it didn't have this side effect on her. Or maybe she was so used to smoking with taking the drug that... Or her body was just used to the injections. All the, dr- all the injections and all the drugs, because she was taking drugs quite regularly. Right. Another interesting thing that was found through the autopsy was how clean Sheila's body was. Her feet and hands were clean. If she was involved in a struggle with both June and Neville, wouldn't her body show signs of a struggle as well? For example, Neville, who's 6'4", was reportedly in good physical health, sustained so many injuries, and Sheila had no markings on her body whatsoever. To police, that seemed a little suspicious. But like we said before, if the weapon is the rifle and he's already been shot four times, it kind of makes him a little less playing field. Yeah, it levels the playing field for sure. Her nails were uh, pristine, as she had just previously gotten a manicure, and her feet were bare. And they had no signs that she had just walked through a kitchen that had broken glass shards all over the floor and sugar from an overturned sugar basin. So her feet were clean. So you would think if she did have a struggle with Neville in the kitchen, wouldn't she have at least granules of sugar, if not cut by all the glass on the floor? She'd have something. It's pretty interesting. Also, because of the amount of shots fired from the murder weapon, it's a fact that the rifle would have had to been reloaded twice throughout the process of the murder. If Sheila had done this, she would have lubricant and or materials from the bullets on her hands. But the only sign of something being amiss was the fact that she had a little bit of blood spatter on her right hand. However, that blood was never tested. She would also have powder residue as well. Right, but they never tested anything. Right. I'm just saying that that would... No, I know. It's just it's sad that some things didn't get tested. Right. Because then you would, would pretty much solve the case. Pretty much. Then we wouldn't have a case to cover. That's true. That's very true. So now would be a good time to talk about the Bambers and their extended family. And this aspect of the case makes things very complicated when it comes to motives. The caravan park that the Bambers owned was only, in fact, owned 75% by Neville. He went into business 75-25 with his cousins. However, after Jeremy returned from his trip to Australia and New Zealand, Jeremy received 8% of the caravan park from Neville's 75%. So Neville still has majority, but he gave 8% over to Jeremy. 
Neville's cousins also lived in buildings that were owned by Neville. Therefore, they received a deduction on their renter's price that they had to pay. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be lovely. I mean, that would be like awesome. That. I'd love that. <laughs> Jeremy, we should get a reduction in price because we got this we have garbage the Drake going concert, on right now. We have the uh, crazy lady upstairs. Crazy lady that plays music I don't understand. Oh my God. It's awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jeremy, who did not want to go to White House Farm, did not want to take the keys from police, but instead gave them to the cousins of his parents. And these are the people that own 25% of the caravan park and live in that uh, building owned by Neville. And they stayed for just a day in the house following the murders, but they also kind of were there to, like, collect things, family heirlooms. And Jeremy had spoken to Neville's cousins before they went into the White House farm following the murders. And he had said to them that this was all a bit much, and he doesn't think that he wanted anything to do with keeping up with what his father did. He wanted to sell everything he inherited so he wasn't reminded of their murders and he could live a carefree life. That's what he told his parents' cousins. I don't believe Jeremy at 24 realized all of the financial ramifications that that statement had. If he wants out of the caravan site, that means Neville's cousins would have to buy out his 75% share, which is a massive amount of money. And if he sells the building that they're living in, wouldn't that mean they now have to pay rent at a full price on top of buying out the 75% share? Right. No, yeah, because, I mean, if he's so entitled like, to the... I mean, this is all his stuff now. So I Right. Mean, so I think he just kind of casually was talking to the cousins in saying that, but he didn't realize, like, oh, my God, you're threatening their way of life now. Right? So that's going to make things all really tense and complicated. So now those cousins that Jeremy just spoke to are going to be staying at the White House farm residence. And on the first night that they're in the house, they are going to contact police and tell them that they found a silencer, which is usually on the rifle that was the murder weapon in the cupboard, like the gun cupboard, the gun cabinet of the house. This is where they found the silencer. Now, police thought this was strange because they had searched that cupboard and didn't find anything. They also stated that they appeared, there appeared to be red flecks of paint on it. And in case this was evidence, they took it to another cousin's house for safekeeping. It's like this, okay, this has been moved around so many times. The police did not come collect silencer for three days. So not only was this, in air quotes, found in the gun cover at White House Family Farm, but they also brought it to the cousin's house and then the police didn't come for three days. So now anything that, that's, that evidence is completely invalid. It's been contaminated so many different times. True. Also... Sorry, I didn't mention this, and I, for our viewers that might not know this, I just want to let them know. So, remember how Kay mentioned how there was circular burn marks on um, Neville's, body. Neville's body? Well, it's actually interesting because if you do put a silencer on any weapon, it actually increases the circumference of the circle. Right. So, it's actually, that's interesting because... Depending on how big the circles were on his back, that means you would know for a fact. That's very interesting. If the silencer was used. No, they know for a fact that the 
circumference of the circles on Neville's burn marks on Neville's back matches that of the rifle. And not the silencer. And not the silencer. So the silencer was not not used. used. But what's interesting is blood is going to be found in the silencer. Hmm. Yeah. So it gets into the complications of what truly happened that night. So that's going to come into play when we kind of go through our theories and say, like, what happened? A day after the silencer was finally collected, the cousins made another phone call to police. They stated that they had found a scratch on the mantelpiece, which had red paint on it. They concluded that this must have been how the silencer got red paint on it, that during the struggle, someone must have, like, hit the silencer and the gun up against the mantelpiece of the fireplace. Hmm. That's what... I mean, I think they're just trying to, like, draw these crazy connections. They also state that someone must have taken it off after the murders. And, of course, the first person they're going to say did this is Jeremy. But the cousins didn't stop there, and they definitely weren't subtle. They claimed that Jeremy had committed the crimes. He murdered his family so that he could inherit all the properties. And this was his goal all along. Because of the evidence found from the autopsy, and the evidence, in super air quotes, <laughs> that the cousins found at the White House farm, the police are going to start looking at Jeremy, like he is a suspect. And many found that Jeremy's behavior after the death of his family is evidence that he was responsible. Now, we want to give you the facts here as to how he acted, but it's really important that you know that people grieve differently. So we will tell you what happened here, but we most likely will interject, of course, because most of the story comes from Jeremy's parents' cousins, so it is a highly biased source. At the funeral, the cousins state that Jeremy was, and there is video footage of this, he was inconsolable during the funeral. He was sobbing, and at one point he had to be held up by his, at the time then, girlfriend. This aligns with how he acted when the bodies were first discovered. Jeremy, once told that his family was inside the house murdered, had went into hysterics and actually at one point vomited. However, the cousins state that just a few hours later, he was smiling and joking at the wake. I don't know. I don't think that that's weird, I have to say, because you, in a grieving state... You're, it's very common to go from sobbing to being lighthearted with somebody else. I think that, I also think, like, like, okay, we're getting one side. Is it possible that maybe someone was making a joke and trying to make him laugh? No, but, like, like it's... You know, but you, know, you know what I'm saying. It's common. I mean, like, honestly, I remember when your grandmother passed away, how upset you were during the wake. Right. But then later on, when the whole family went out to dinner to celebrate her life, we were talking with your cousins, and it was, yeah. like, a nice day. And and you were smiling and remembering things. So it's it could Absolutely. be... I, I guess from personal normal. experience, it's like, for me anyway, it's more of like when you're in that moment, and you're around your entire family, and you're surrounded by, you know, caskets and all the other stuff that comes with a funeral, you're triggered. Right. And when those things aren't present, you're right. fine. That's how I am anyway. Right. When I'm surrounded, I guess you, I'll just say it like this, when you're surrounded by death or things that are associated with death and grieving, it triggers you. So Yeah. And when they're not there, 
I mean, you're still upset, but you could actually function. Right, right. And that's, that's what people get twisted. Yeah, I think it's very wrong to say that the fact that he was, was joking and smiling means that he wasn't upset about the death of his parents. I think that that's, it's kind of a silly, I think there's better arguments. If you're going to say that Jeremy is guilty in killing his family, there's a lot stronger arguments that can be made. Absolutely. So shortly after the funeral, he also traveled with his girlfriend and their friend to Amsterdam, where they spent their vacation buying large quantities of pot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But that's like what everyone does. The cousins of the Bambers also did not like the fact that Jeremy started selling goods of his parents and his sister. That is a little weird. Jeremy had given his mother's car to his girlfriend's mother and placed an ad in the paper to sell Neville's car. Jeremy also tried to sell nude... This is weird. Jeremy also tried to sell the nude photographs of his sister. Remember she did that photo shoot that she wasn't happy about? Right. He tried to sell them for 20,000 pounds, but he was unsuccessful. Nobody bought them. Thank God. How much is 20,000 pounds? Well, if you're going to like equate it to what it would be today, it would be a lot more. Okay, we're back. We had to do an extensive math session right then because we wanted to know the answer. So 20,000 pounds back in 1985 will like be the equivalent of about 50,000 pounds today and 61,000 American dollars. That's ridiculous. Like, well, well, first of all, who the hell would buy naked pictures of somebody okay, for like sixty? This is why, because in the media at the time, there it was this like massive thing. So Sheila's nickname was Bambi, like Bamber, Bambi, right? And she was a model. She was beautiful. So it was like, oh, this beautiful woman went crazy and killed her whole family. It was kind of like this big news thing. So he was trying to get money based off of the fact that everyone, this beautiful woman, killed her family. Like, it was unheard of. I guess so. So yeah. he was trying to capitalize on that. But nobody ended up buying it, That's which a very is good. scummy thing to do. Yeah, and that kind of shows his character. I think that shows his character more than the whole funeral behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Thank God he was unsuccessful. So after this, he went on another vacation with a friend to Saint-Tropez in France. Ooh. So he's going on a lot of... Yeah, that's not... We've never been... To... Our... The closest we've been to Saint-Tropez is my... Self-tanning lotion. That's what it's called. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it is. Look. No way. Saint-Tropez. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> things are beginning to look suspicious for the police regarding Jeremy, so they decided to keep a close watch on him. However, it seemed as if the case was going to remain a murder-suicide. That is until September 7th, 1985. When Jeremy's ex-girlfriend, Julie Mugford, a month after the murders took place, give police a second statement. Now, this is the girlfriend who kind of like was by his side at the funeral. Right. But now they've broken up. Are you ready for this story? I'm ready. Julie Mugford, a month after the murders take place, give police her second statement. And she's going to start off this statement by saying that in the past, she had helped Jeremy stage a robbery at the caravan site. What? Yeah. The plan was to stage a break-in and that they themselves would take 1,000 pounds from the office. Julie then said her initial statement that she gave to police was wrong. 
So she had initially told police that after Jeremy had called the police, he had called her and said that there was something wrong at his parents' house and that he had to go there. She said that she said okay to him and for him to call her later. She stated that she was tired, it was almost 4 a.m., but she never asked him what was wrong. So that was Juliet's initial statement to police. However, in the weeks following the murder, Mugford is going to describe the troubled times that she was having with Jeremy. She said that they had been getting into a lot of fights, mostly regarding the murders. She stated in the past that Jeremy had admitted to wanting to kill his parents and that she knew he had done it. Wow. Mm-hmm. So if anything, between trying to sell his sister's naked photos and this girlfriend. and staging uh, robberies and all this other bullshit, I mean... There's a lot coming out about Jeremy yeah. Bamber. Come on, Jeremy. Get your shit together. She told him he was a psychopath. And at one point, she said she was so disgusted with him that she had tried to kill him by smothering him with a pillow, but she was unsuccessful. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little elaborate, this story. Whatever you do, though, when you get a little tired of me, just don't smother me with a pillow. I'll okay? try not to. Okay. However, the last straw was for Mug... However, the last straw for Mugford was when on September 4th, another woman called Jeremy while she was at his house. It was clear that Jeremy had been seeing both women, and she had said that at that moment she saw red. She smashed a mirror and slapped him across the face. She then claims that Bamber twisted her arm behind her back and forced her to leave. And then she was there at the police station, ready to tell the full story. He ain't loyal. No. <laughs> she's, she's really not either, though. I know. I see that. <laughs> in her second statement, she claims that Jeremy had said to her in late 1984 that he wished to get rid of them all. That's his quote. She reveals that he felt that way because he believed his old father and mad mother were trying to run his life for him. He also told her that his sister had nothing to live for and that the twins were disturbed. Another thing she said bothered Jeremy was the fact that his parents were paying for Sheila's expensive flat, even though she wasn't doing anything with her life, partying and doing way too many drugs. She then went on to say that he had made some plans to actually commit the murders. The first plan was that he was to sedate his parents with sleeping pills and then shoot them, after which he would set the house on fire. He added that Sheila would be a good scapegoat for this because of her mental illness. His second plan was to ride his bike via the back roads to his parents' house, where he would climb into the house through a kitchen window because the lock was broken, and he would leave through a window that was locked if shut from the outside. He stated that he would make a phone call from the house to himself to throw off investigators. Mm. Pretty interesting, right? Things are starting to come Ooh. together here, even though he's like trying to do some Mission Impossible stuff yeah, here. Yeah, it's pretty elaborate. Mm. He then told Sheila that he had tried to kill some rats with his bare hands to see if he could kill his family, but that he was unable to do so. Couldn't squeeze a rat? Yeah. Now, I, I, this is pretty interesting because... Poor rat. Well, the rat survived. I know, but still. The rat's the only survivor of the story, basically. Out. Didn't the dog uh, live to? 
He had a dog lift, good which always that always makes me feel oh, good. It always makes me feel I better. I love dogs. I know. I love animals. I know. I wish we could get a dog. We can't. This me too. stupid apartment. All right. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Sorry. But the motive is what's weird. Do you know what I mean? Behind Julie Mugford, okay, all of a sudden she's got this story. She's got, it's like, well, first of all, Jeremy, you screwed up because if you truly murdered your family and you told your girlfriend about it, you probably shouldn't have been cheating on her. If there is any validity to the story. No, I know. If there's validity to it, it's like, Jeremy, you're a moron for doing that. Right. But then it's like, is this just a woman scorned? I think it's a little bit of both. If yeah. he is indeed... I do. Either, I, but, I, I but, think it's a little bit of both. But yeah. it would be weird. I mean, how does she know all this crap? Yeah, and that's a pretty elaborate story to spin, so I think there does have to be truth to it. I think so, too. So Mugford said that the weekend before the murder, she stayed with Bamber at his house, and that he had just dyed his hair black. Which is a weird fact. Identity crisis. <laughs> She had said that she had seen his mother's bike at his house. So he did have his mother's bike at the house. That's like plan two. Right. She then said at 9.50, which would have been after he got home from being at his parents all day with his sister and nephews, that he was thinking about the crime all day and he was pissed off. He ended the call by saying that it was tonight or never. Ooh. Yeah, if this is true. A few hours later, at 3 to 3.30 a.m. on August 7th, she said he phoned her again to say, everything is going well. Something is wrong at the farm. I haven't had any sleep all night. Bye, honey, and I love you lots. Her flatmate's evidence suggests that the call had come through closer to 3 a.m. He called her later in the morning to tell her that Sheila had gone mad and that a police car was coming to pick her up. When she arrived with the police at Bamber's cottage, she said that he had pulled her to one side and said, I should have been an actor. Oh my God. If this is true, that explains the phone call, the demeanor at the site, him throwing up, getting hysterical. This is crazy. If he pulled this off, right, it's truly insane. And there's nothing that could ever, I mean, the ev- there's no evidence, really. <laughs> well, let's get into that. Yeah. So later on the evening of August 7th, she asked Bamber whether he had done it. And he said no, but that a friend of his had, whom he named. The man was a plumber the family had used in the past. Bamber allegedly said that he had told his friend how he could enter and leave the farmhouse undetected, and that one of his instructions had been for the friend to telephone him from the farm on one of the phones in the house that had a memory redial facility, so that if police checked it, it would give him the alibi. Everything had gone as planned, he said, except that Neville had put up a fight and the friend had become angry and shot him seven times, but that's false. Neville was shot eight times. The friend had allegedly told Sheila to lie down and shoot herself last, Bamber said. The friend then placed the Bible on her chest so she appeared to have killed herself in a religious frenzy, which all of Sheila's delusions did have religious undertones. And who else better to know all of this than him? Than him. The children were shot in their sleep, he said. Mugford said Bamber claimed to have paid the friend 2,000 pounds. 
It's a bad deal for the friend. Yeah, really? What the hell? He's selling photos for 20,000 pounds. That's what I'm saying. After Julie Mugford recounted all of these details, the police will arrest Jeremy Bamber for the murder of his family the following day. What will follow will be one of the most controversial and contested trials in the history of the United Kingdom. Once Bamber was arrested, it was determined that his friend that had been implicated by Julie Mugford had an airtight alibi and was not involved in the murder of the Bamber family. Bamber's immediate retort to the allegations made by Mugford was that she was only telling police these lies because he had broken up with her and because he wanted to see other women. He seemed to have an answer for everything the police were saying that Mugford said. He told police that he really did love his parents and his sister, but they bickered and got annoyed with each other like any family does. And of course there was some sibling resentment, but it didn't make him want to kill them. In regards to the breaking in of the caravan site, Bamber said that he did it to prove to his father that the security at the site was faulty. He also said that it was normal for him to gain entry into the farmhouse using the downstairs windows and that it was for that reason that he had removed the catches on the window. In regard to his parents' cousin's claim about him doing it for the will and all the money, the inheritance, Jeremy said that it wouldn't make sense. His parents were not withholding any money for him. They were paying for his flat and he was actually making a lot of money at the caravan park. In fact, he even mentioned to the police officers at the scene of the crime, as they were waiting to go inside, that he was actually going to buy a Porsche soon with his earnings from the caravan park. And in this way, he was getting more money for doing less work, and that if he actually stood to inherit the stuff, he would have to take over a lot of work. Bamber even had a reasonable answer for the silencer. He stated that those who stated the silencer was always on the rifle were mistaken because the silencer was always taken off because it wouldn't fit in the case otherwise. And Neville was always careful about putting his guns back away in cases after he used them. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense. I mean, because a silencer would add about, I want to say, five inches maybe. Yeah, and let's not forget. So the rifle? Let's not forget that Jeremy states that he quickly pulled out the rifle because he thought he saw a rabbit. So he didn't. He like grabbed it out. He wasn't like, oh let me get, oh let me take the time to put the silencer on, which which had to be screwed on. Yeah, you have to screw it on, and it has threads, so yes. you have to get the whole thing on before you do anything. Right. So he. That's why he was like, there was no silencer on the gun when I left it. Even if, like, Jeremy went berserk or Sheila went berserk, if anyone went crazy and picked up that rifle, they wouldn't have the time to screw on the silencer. Exactly, which that's where I was alluding to. Right. doesn't make sense. I don't think it was ever on the gun. So Jeremy was released on bail on September 13th, and it was then that he tried to sell Sheila's pictures. So he tried to sell Sheila's pictures after he got arrested the first time. So weird. Yeah, unless he was doing it for like a lawyer, but it's your sister's nude photos. Like, don't sell those. Dude, burn those. Don't man. even look at them. You're weird. Dude, that's your sister. You know? yeah. <laughs> Just burn I that mean, shit. not by blood. Not by blood, but still. Yeah, that more, would add a listen, whole a, another weird layer to listen, this man, case. This is like the, you know, still have to have uh, your moral compass here. Yeah. Just burn the pictures. And then that's also when he went on that trip to San Tropez with his friend. 
So before he left for this trip, at this point, his parents' cousins were no longer staying at the house, and he needed to gain admission because he stated that there were papers at the house that he needed for his trip to France. However, police found it weird that instead of getting into the house by asking the caretaker who lived on the property for the key, he climbed through the bottom window. However, when he returned from his trip to France, police felt they had enough evidence to arrest him for the murders of his family. Now, prosecution is going to say that the reason why Jeremy wanted to enter the house through the window was to put his DNA in the window to show that he always, in air quotes, entered through the window. window. But like, if they didn't find it, they'd be like, okay, well, that story's a lie that Jeremy was saying. Do you know what I mean? Right. So the trial procedures occurred in October of the following year in 1986. The trial lasted for 19 days and was heard by Sir Morris Strait, a judge of the High Court of England and Wales, and the decision was decided by a jury of Bamber's peers at the Chelmsford Crown Court. I'm so sorry if I said that wrong. The case was very long and a lot of evidence was heard. What we are going to do is explain the case made by prosecution and the defense. It is also important to know that the media was covering the case around the clock and Jeremy was portrayed as an arrogant, entitled kid who greedily murdered his parents. He also did not do himself any favors when he was being questioned on the stand. So let's get into the case given by the prosecution. They decided that the best they could do was to go with the scenario that Julie Mugford gave. That's the second explanation, the second plan that he concocted. But if they were going to do that, they would need Mugford to testify during the trial. She chose to do so after the prosecution gave her immunity for all pending charges that she had against her. It was like check fraud. She had been caught with some pot and then the breaking into the caravan site. So they would forgive it all if she testified against Jeremy. That's a sweet deal. It's a very sweet deal. So the story goes for them that Bamber's motivation for committing the crime was greed, hatred, and jealousy. The storyline that they presented at trial goes as follows. Bamber had left the family's house at 10 p.m. and then returned to the farm using his mother's bike. While doing this, he avoided all major roads so that he would be hidden from sight. Once he got to the house, he entered the house through the downstairs bathroom window. Once inside, he picked up the rifle, with the silencer attached, this is their claim, and went upstairs. They then state that Jeremy first shot his mother in her bed, but she managed to get up and walk into the hallway, where she was shot again and then died. He also shot Neville in the bedroom. However, Neville was able to get downstairs, and that this is where the struggle ensued. He then shot Sheila and finally the two twin boys in their bedroom as they slept. They further argued that he staged the scene to try and make it look like Sheila was responsible for the crimes. However, he realized that Sheila would not have physically been able to reach the trigger in order to shoot herself with the silencer on the rifle because this made the weapon too long. That is why he took the silencer off and hid it in the cupboard. They stated that Bamber may have possibly showered at the house before he left, and he left through the kitchen window, banging on it until the catch would drop again and the window was locked. He left again on his mother's bike and went home. 
He first called Bugford and then he called the police. To create a delay before the bodies were discovered, he had not called 999. And he drove slowly to the farmhouse. So that's why he called the direct line to the police station and not emergency number dispatch. And it's also why he was driving slow. Right. He then set the scene by telling the police that his sister was familiar with guns so that they would be reluctant to enter. This is a very elaborate ruse here. It's very elaborate, but it kind of like you could say like, okay, this this does make sense. It does. It absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. The prosecution argued that Bamber had not received a telephone call from his father, that Neville was too badly injured after the first shots to have spoken to anyone. Neville was shot six times in the face. Yeah, I don't think you could pick up the phone and have a casual conversation. And there was no blood on the kitchen phone that had been left off the hook, that Neville would have called police before he called Bamber. It doesn't make sense that Neville would have called his son before calling 999. Why would he do that? Unless he wants to keep it in the family and he doesn't want people finding out that Sheila went crazy. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? There should at least be blood on the phone if this man has been shot. At least, if they're saying that Neville made this phone call before being shot in the face, he at least was shot several times prior to this, so there would have been blood on the phone. They also argued that had Bamber really received such a call, he would have dialed 999, alerted the farm workers, and then made his, his way there quickly. Also argued that Neville Bamber never called the police station and that the logs had just gotten confused and rewritten. So, like, that the two logs that we talked about in part one, that they really just the same call, but it was rewritten. I see what you're saying. Yeah, like, whereas one, like, the first time they wrote down the call, they were recording Jeremy's address. But then when they rewrote it, they wrote down the address of where the police were to be dispatched to. So maybe it's just the same call. What the prosecution focused on the most, though, was this idea of the silencer. Like, this is what they kind of drove home. The silencer played a central role, and it was deemed to have been on the rifle when it was fired because of the blood found inside. The prosecution said the blood had come from Sheila's head when the silencer was pointed at her. Had she discovered that she could not shoot herself with the silencer attached, the court heard, it would have been found next to her body. She had no reason to go and return it to the cupboard. So if Sheila truly committed suicide, the silencer would be next to her. Or near her, somewhere. Regarding discovery and the analysis, the prosecution stated that the police searched the gun cupboard on the day of the murders but found nothing. Three days later, on August 10th, Bamber's extended family visited the farm with uh, the estate's executor. During the visit, one of the cousins, um, his name is David Boutflower, found the silencer and the rifle sights in the gun cupboard. The court heard that this was witnessed by Boutflower's father and sister as well as the executor of the will and the farm secretary. So there were other people present that didn't have invested interests like the cousins did when the silencer was found. Okay. Instead of alerting the police, the family took the silencer to Boutflower's sister's home. Boutflower said that it felt sticky. They found red paint and blood on it, and the surface of it had been damaged. When police collected the silencer from them on August 12th, five days after the murders, 
an officer reportedly noticed an inch-long gray hair attached to it, but that this had gone by the time of the silencer's arrival to Forensic Science Services at Huntington. Well, that sucks. So there was a hair on the silencer, but it was lost. And of course. But the problem is also that that hair could have been from the sister's house. Like That's true. Yeah. It's, it's been moved around so many times. It truly should not be used as evidence in this court case whatsoever, the silencer. Police didn't find it, and it moved through custody of so many different people that it's now invalid. Today, that wouldn't be admitted into evidence. No, but the, but you gotta understand, 1985, they didn't have anything else to go by, really, other than the silencer. I know. Because it's the only missing piece in a lot of areas when they talk about it. Right. A scientist at the Forensic Science Laboratory, Mr. Hayward, found blood on the inside and outside surfaces of the silencer. The latter did not have enough to permit analysis, but the blood inside was found to be of the same blood group as Sheila's. A firearms expert, a Mr. Fletcher, said that the blood was back spatter caused by close contact shooting. Which makes sense. Okay, which makes sense, but if there's blood on the silencer, that means that Sheila was not... She couldn't have killed herself because it's too long. The gun, the barrel, the barrel yeah, with the silencer on it would be too way long. too long. That's true. So that's why prosecution is going to love this idea of the silencer because they're going to say that if it's too long, she can't kill herself, meaning she was killed, so an outside party had to have done it. Yes. But to me, the silencer shouldn't be used as evidence. It's been touched by multiple people yeah. and in different places. I don't know. That's crazy. Right. Then the prosecution is going to state that she couldn't have carried out the killings because she had not recently expressed any suicidal thoughts. Like, all of her suicidal thoughts had come from prior to her taking this medication regularly. The expert evidence was that she would not have harmed her children or father. She had no interest in or knowledge of guns and that she lacked the strength to overcome her father, and that there was also no physical evidence on her persons, on her clothes, or anywhere near where she was murdered. Also, since the silencer is playing such a big part in this case, I, f I just thought I'd tell you quickly, also, if a silencer is on a weapon, there's also um, extra blowback every time you pull the trigger, and that's due to gas being forced back up through the chamber. Because, and that's when it's on. Right. So what happens is the bullet goes through the silencer because it's more narrow. I guess, like It's more narrower than the actual barrel. Right. So that because of that, that bullet, when it goes through, it has a blowback. So there's more gas coming towards the person. So it, even though the caliber round isn't powerful, it would still take a, a person that knows what they're doing and a little bit of strength to hold that weapon, especially with that extra blowback. So you're saying that it would be difficult for Sheila to have handled everything with the silencer as well. Exactly. Also, let's just say for some crazy reason, she even with the silencer on the barrel, was still actually able to kill herself. The blowback would cause her body to like fly around. And like the blood splatter, I'm sure, would be increased mm -hmm. due to that extra blowback from the silencer. Right. So It's very interesting. I, I get why the prosecution really were steadfast on this silencer because that would be a big case solver as well. Definitely. So 
Now it's the defense's job at this point to prove that the motive the prosecution said was not there. Right? They have to prove that Jeremy did not want to kill his family. They were going to explain and question witnesses with the goal of proving that those who were saying Bamber hated his family or just wanted money may be lying because of their own ulterior motives. For example, his ex-girlfriend is mad that Bamber was cheating on her and broke up with her, and his extended family just wanted to collect on the inheritance themselves and wouldn't be able to do so with Jeremy still alive or convicted of their murders. The defense stated that no one saw Bamber biking to the farm, and that there was absolutely no wounds on Bamber to show signs that he would have gotten into a fight. So Bamber was clear of physical wounds as well. And no one's, like, this whole idea of him biking to the house, and we could make a very strong argument that this is just all concocted in Julie Mugford's mind. But the prosecution is saying that this is all fact. And what they're saying is there's no proof that he did that. Like, nobody saw him ride the bike there. Like, this is all just in their imagination. I mean, they're really basing it off of one person's testimony. Right. A woman (laughs) scorned who's also getting deals, getting off with all the charges that she's accused of. So, it's she's a questionable witness. Shaky. Yeah. (laughs) Shaky, shaky witness. No bloodstained clothes were ever recovered from Bamber. They did get the clothes that he was wearing that night. It's not like he burned them. They got, they got the clothes. There was no blood on them. He said that he did not want to drive fast to the house because he was scared and he wanted the police to get there first. But the defense could not ignore the fact that the murders did take place. So if Jeremy Bamber did not commit them, then someone must have. They are going to work to prove that Sheila was the one who committed the murders. They stated that she had a mental illness with a past with a past of violent outbursts. She had told psychiatrists that she felt capable of killing her children, as she thought that they were the children of the devil. Maybe she snapped after a fight that took place with her parents that could have happened for any reason. Maybe because her parents mentioned the foster care. Maybe because they were making the boys pray. Maybe because Sheila resented the fact that her parents always tried to control her and now the boys. Maybe she was upset that her mother was making her receive antipsychotic injections that she didn't like taking while she was taking drugs. And during the fight, in her fuming afterwards, she saw the loaded rifle and went upstairs. She knew how to use guns and she grew up on a farm. So it's ridiculous to say that Sheila didn't know how. To use guns. She did. Yeah, she did. She even went shooting with her brother on occasions. But how did the defense explain that Sheila's body was clean of any blood and or debris at the time of her death? The defense is going to explain that this, for Sheila, is an altruistic killing. If the delusions of her mental illness were that she was and her children were the devil's children, and that they were evil then she was killing them and herself to unburden the world of their presence. The defense argues that in the most that in most altruistic killings that are done, they are done in a ritualistic fashion. Therefore, it would make sense that Sheila would remove the silencer, shower, retrieve the family Bible, and place it next to her. So they're not denying that the silencer was used. 
They're saying that the silencer might have been used for some of the killings, then taken off so that she could kill herself. And that maybe in like a ritualistic fashion, she showered, she put the silencer away. Maybe the blood, air quotes here, that was found in the silencer isn't necessarily from Sheila herself, but from her boys. Because they share similar... Right. Do you know what I'm saying? That's possible. But I I always feel like... The thing is, they didn't know too much about DNA. Like, I feel like if they had the DNA technology they have today, this case could have been solved easily. But unfortunately, that's most of the cases we talk about. Yeah. So before the jury were set to find Bamber guilty or not, the judge is going to address them. This is interesting. He said that there are three points that the jury needs to address... And if they do so, this will help guide the decisions they make in regards to the verdict. Those three things were, did the jury believe Julie Mugford or Jeremy Bamber? Were they sure that Sheila was not the killer who then committed suicide? He said this question involved another. Was the second fatal shot fired at Sheila with the silencer on? If yes, she could not have fired it. Finally, did Neville call Bamber in the middle of the night? If there was no such call, it undermined the entirety of Bamber's story. The only reason he would have had to invent the phone call was that if he was responsible for the murders. That is crazy that the judge said that to the jury. (laughs) That is so leading. I know. So now that those members of the jury know, the judge thinks Jeremy's guilty. Yeah, pretty much. So now they're going to feel like idiots if they come out and say he's not. Yeah, you can't do that. Are you kidding me? That's crazy. (laughs) Even if he is, even if he did it, like, let them make the, the choice. That's how the court systems work. Right. So the jury found Bamber guilty on October 28th, 1986, by a majority of 10 to 2. Had one more juror supported him, he wouldn't have been convicted. Wow. And you think the judge had a big part in that? Of course. The judge told him that he was evil almost beyond belief and sentenced him to five life terms with a recommendation that he serve at least 25 years. In December of 1994, Home Security Michael Howard told Bamber that he would remain in prison for the rest of his life following a decision by Home Secretary of the Day Douglas Hurd who did not want to grant him any type of reprieve for what he had done. After this, Julie sold her story to a lot of magazines and newspapers, and she would eventually earn what is the equivalent of 60,000 pounds today. That's ironic. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because the, 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 the pictures. The yeah. naked photos. I know. <laughs> Bitch, I got you. <laughs> Bamber would be able to appeal this in 1988. He argued, pretty solid argument in my opinion, that the judge had misdirected the jury based on his speech and asked for a hearing in front of three judges. However, his application was rejected in 1989. Because the trial judge had criticized the police investigation, Essex police held an internal inquiry conducted by Detective Chief Superintendent Dickinson. Bamber alleged this report confirmed that evidence had been withheld by the police, so he made a formal complaint 
which was investigated in 1999 by the City of London Police. This process uncovered more documentation, which Bamber used to petition the Home Secretary in September of 1993 but it was refused in July of 1994. So they found evidence, the City of London police, that the police had withheld evidence in the trial that would have helped Bamber, but he was denied again. How is that fair? That's not justice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I. What has happened with this case, from what I can observe through all the reading that I've done, is the fact that it truly has no longer been about whether or not Jeremy did this, but whether or not an injustice was done to him through the court system. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, because what happens is there's, there's actually this huge conspiracy theory that Sheila was still alive the whole time, and that was the moving they saw inside of the building. Like, remember the police said, oh, they saw movement, and that's why they didn't go in? Right that that was Sheila, that she was still alive, that just before the police came in, she killed herself. That's a conspiracy theory. But what adds to it is the fact that there was this massive misinformation that got out. One of the police officers, when he looked through the window, saw a body laying on the ground. It was Neville's body. He thought it was a female. So when he radioed in, I see a female on the floor of the kitchen. It started this conspiracy theory that when police entered the house, Sheila was playing dead on the floor of the kitchen. And that while the police were searching the house, she snuck her way up because there's... This house is massive. There's actually two staircases that could bring you upstairs. One in the front of the house and one in the back of the house. So the conspiracy theory is that Sheila played dead on the floor of the kitchen, went upstairs through the back stairway, and shot herself before the police could come, and that's why she was bleeding so profusely when the police found her. I don't know about that. That's a that's it's it's, it's yeah. I that's, mean, I think it's a little stretch. Like they're trying oh, to stretch it's so it. So stretch. But, but, but like I said, if it did happen, that's a movie. Absolutely, but I just don't think it would. It just can't because they would have heard that shot. That could be the greatest Blumhouse movie of all time. <laughs> Um, so that anyway, that's the, the crazy theories that are coming out surrounding this case, but we're going to kind of talk about our theories at the end. So during this process, the home office declined to give Bamber the expert evidence that it had obtained. So Bamber applied for judicial review of that decision in November of 1994. And that resulted in the home office handing over the expert evidence that they had received from the police. In 1996, without informing Bamber or his lawyers, an Essex police officer destroyed all of the trial exhibits. What? Yeah. Remember I said 10 years later, they d destroyed all the evidence? That's insane. As he's going through his appeals. How is that possible? All of the evidence got destroyed. Ugh. The officer said that he had not been aware the case was ongoing. What do you mean? How? How do they not know that? Yeah. In fact, the handling of evidence in the Bamber case and the destroying of evidence afterwards has been the worst handling of evidence the UK has ever seen. When the police do not collect or mess up the collection of evidence in the United Kingdom, it's now commonly referred to as doing a Bamber. Like, they know how much they screwed up. 
So now when someone screws up evidence, they call it doing a bamber. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, except for Jer- except for Jeremy Bamber. <laughs> Actually, in the book that I read by Carol Ann Lee about the murders, um, it's an amazing book. Uh, Bamber makes the argument that a DCI working the case actually found the silencer under the bed, which would make sense as to why Sheila would take it off. And she dropped it on the floor, it rolled under the bed, and when the police officer found it, he placed it back in the gun uh, cupboard, which makes sense. That 100% makes sense because police searched the cupboard when they first got into the house. Which actually makes complete sense because how do you explain the police searched the cupboard, the gun cupboard, and there was no silencer, but then when the cousins went back, there was one in there because a police officer found one under the bed and put it in afterwards. So I, that I, means the I, silencer I was that. by Sheila. I believe that. Oh, 100%. I mean, if they, I mean, they've been negligent the whole time. Yeah. From the and then, moment and they then got if you, there. And then once you realize you screwed up like that, I'm never going to say anything. Yeah, really? Yeah. They pulled a Isn't that, Yeah. In the book, they also say that the police actually collected two silencers and mixed up the evidence between the two. Because there were two silencers in the gun cupboard, and there was two silencers entered into evidence. Hmm. Whether or not this is true has to be proven, has not been proven, because all the evidence was destroyed. All right, but let's go back to the appeal in 1997. In 1997, the Home Office passed Bamber's case to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which had just been established to review alleged miscarriages of justice. Jeremy got his appeal in October of 2002. The appeal was on the grounds of 16 issues that Bamber's defense wanted to call into question. These issues were not brought up in his original trial or appeals, and they go as follows. Now, this is actually pretty interesting because when we go through this list of 16 things that weren't brought up during trial and appeals, it's actually crazy that these things weren't involved. Are you ready? Ready. First, hand swabs from Sheila Caffell. So all of the blood spatter that got on Sheila's hand that was never tested. So why wasn't that brought into question? Because that would show that she possibly did shoot people and got blood spatter back on her hands. The testing of the hand swabs of Sheila Caffell, because they weren't even mentioned in the first trial, nor were they tested. Disturbance of the crime scene. Evidence relating to the windows, so the fact that Jeremy did usually go through the window that was entry of the house um timing of phone call to julie mugford evidence relevant to the credibility of julie mugford a letter from colin caffell and this is just um a letter really explaining that colin was concerned about sheila hurting herself and hurting the children this was in their divorce settlement regarding custody of the children statement of Colin Caffell, they didn't even ask him what he thought. Which is crazy, because yeah. that's the father, the father of these children. The father of two kids that just got murdered. Absolutely. Crazy. Photograph showing the carving of wood saying, I hate this place. 
So like, you know how the boys carved, I hate right. this place. That was never shown, which I thought was really interesting. And I was thinking about this. What if now the boys, this is a little bit of a stretch. Maybe I'm going a little crazy with this. The boys were staying in Sheila's old room. What if the boys never carved that into the wood? What if Sheila did when she was a kid? And that shows her deep seated resentment. That's possible. For her parents and the hatred. And like she seemed, maybe she had this hatred always brewing. And the fact that they're now controlling her life, making her get the injections, they're involved in everything, it just built. Maybe it wasn't the boys that carved I hate this place into it. Maybe it was Sheila. That's cool, actually. Never thought yeah, about that. I was thinking about that. It, yeah. Then the Bible. So the evidence of the Bible, there was blood on it. The question of inheritance, so it was just really in regards to the fact that he didn't want to inherit everything. It was too much work for him. Jeremy was a typical 24-year-old guy who just wanted to go out, party, and have fun. He didn't want the responsibilities of the inheritance. That's true. He was, his flat was paid for. He was getting so much money. He was just about to buy a Porsche. Yeah, he wouldn't have wanted to assume yeah, more responsibility. Right. Even if there was more money it, involved. It also wouldn't even... The effort that it takes to kill an entire family for the money... Like, it's just... He was what everyone called an underachiever. Right. So, uh, maybe this is... Setting the yes. bar a little too high? Yes. <laughs> the only time you'd want to be called an underachiever. Yeah, really. Um, the proposed purchase of a Porsche by the appellant. So... That's him saying, like, he did tell the police, oh, I'm going to buy a, a Porsche, showing that he already has money. It's not like money is being withheld from him. Right. That's what that evidence is for. The telephone in the office, um, the, there was uh, a phone was taken off of, like, it was pulled from the plug, proving that, like, maybe Sheila was trying to stop them from contacting the outside. Scars on the appellate's hand. Blood. In the sound moderator, DNA evidence, and police misconduct. So police misconduct wasn't even mentioned in the... <laughs> the police misconduct is the, like biggest the first thing, one. <laughs> I know. Um, but the blood in the sound moderator, they want to be tested because they know that it's not... And this is... I mean, it's, it's very helpful in this case that Sheila was adopted by Neville and June because the blood can't be mistaken for each other's blood. But the children's blood could have, back in 1985, been mistaken for Sheila's. True. So, if it's it's the children's blood, then that explains that the silencer was on when she shot them, but then it wasn't her blood in the silencer when she went to go kill herself. So, the biggest piece of evidence was the information from the silencer. In the original court case, it was presented by an expert that it was Sheila's blood in the silencer. However, new testing done using Sheila's biological birth mother shows that it wasn't Sheila's blood in the silencer. It was June's. Wow. However, the judge in 2002 concluded that the DNA results were complex, incomplete, and meaningless. His appeal was not successful. Bamber will go on to be denied his appeal in regards to the whole life tariff in which British prisoners who were sentenced to life terms appeal to the European Courts of Human Rights. However, it was rejected in 2012. That's crazy. So Jeremy Bamber is still in jail. Pretty crazy, right? That is insane. Yeah. Imagine, I mean, imagine if 
he didn't do this shit, I would be so mad that I'm in jail now <laughs> and I can't get out. Yeah. And there's been 16 errors in my of evidence that being withheld. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In my court case, I'd be so pissed. But I will say that, like, I think this is a, this is really crazy because we ha- we have to look at two schools of thought here. Jeremy's innocent. Jeremy's guilty. So Jeremy being guilty. Why would he be guilty? What evidence points to that? I think. Well, the only pieces that come to mind for me is he knew the layout of the property, how to get in and how to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, the testimony, which I, I hate testimony anyway, but yes, the testimony of his girlfriend. Julie Mugford, yeah. And maybe just being proficient with firearms. Yeah. Other being than angry, that, it does seem like he was not a fan of his adopted parents. It does seem like he wasn't a fan of Sheila and his nephews. I don't think he was a loving uncle and brother. No. I think he felt a disconnect. Maybe, but even so, I don't think it's... It didn't give well, we're, him... We're talking only about him being guilty. Uh, well, I'm yeah. Sorry. And I think the fact that his... I do... I never say that his behavior gave stuff away, but selling nude photo, Trying to sell the nude photographs of your sister that had just, if you're going with this, committed suicide, killed your whole family... It's a little weird. It is. It's a little weird. I think it shows his character a little bit there. Um, he was also very arrogant during the trial. Uh, people didn't like that. I think his demeanor really didn't help him uh, whatsoever. And I think it is very suspicious that he had to, when he was making his trip to San Tropez, he had to get in through the window. Why couldn't he ask the caretaker? That is weird. Also, if my if I knew that my parents were in danger, right? If my father called and said that to me, I would call emergency services. I would also call the caretakers on the farm that could get there in 30 seconds and say, can you see what's going on? Could you possibly stop this? Yeah. Like why? I don't get his thought process in the, his actions after the phone calls, because it seems like he was trying to prolong police not going in and like I feel like police would have acted more if he was hysterical like we got to get in we got to help my family we got to do this I think but because he was back. so calm yeah, he was. they were calm yes which is weird because I wouldn't have been calm I wouldn't have been calm either but once again everyone handles stress. emotion yes. and stress differently but but that's I, different I that's different I'm talking about during the commission of a crime. After a death, you could say people handle grief differently. But if you're not eager to save your family, that's, that's weird. Because that, pr- that shows that you already know what the hell happened in there. Exactly. Right. So that's a little weird. Maybe he did hire somebody to do this. And he said it was the one guy, but it wasn't that guy. It was a different guy. That could be. I just think I think it's very interesting. Um, the whole silencer thing is very bizarre, but I will say I do believe the narrative that the police did search the cupboard. The silencer was found later and then placed back there, and the cousins found it. Yeah, I think the that's I think I the think cop happens. definitely. I mean, that's screwed up there a little. Oh bit. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But then the other side is that 
Jeremy is innocent and that Sheila committed this. And I think the blood evidence in the silencer being June is overwhelming. I think that's damning evidence. Yeah. And that the judge is out of his mind. I also think it's bizarre that someone took the time with this unscrewing and screwing of the silencer. But the only way that... The only thing that makes sense as to why the silencer was screwed on and then screwed off would be if Sheila was to commit suicide. It doesn't make sense for Jeremy to unscrew the silencer. No, not after he already shot people already no. with it on. Unless he was staging Sheila's. I, I, I think suicide. this is a hard one and I and I and I love when they're like this because it really you know, in plain English, it's just a mind fuck yeah. for me. Because uh, I don't know where to go with it. Yeah. I, I will though I I do think though, even though she has mental illness and stuff and all these other issues that was going on, I actually think that Jeremy did it, actually. Yeah, I think well I don't know. Oh, well, listen. The only thing that makes me say no is what you just said with, with the, the unscrewing and screwing yeah. of the silencer. But I still think he did it. Okay, this is my final thought process on this. I do think that Jeremy did it, but I think that the police screwed up so bad that if anyone could ever have gotten away with murder, it should have been Jeremy Bamber. Because how could you call... Every piece of evidence is invalid. Because they contaminated the crime scene so unbelievably. Evidence was moved all over the place. Evidence was destroyed. If anyone should have gotten away with murder, it should have been Jeremy Bamber. So you're saying that he did it himself or he hired somebody? I just don't know. I don't know. It's too, it also I, makes it complicated that he was outside. I think that was the one of the most masterful plans to be outside while the commission of a crime is happening. Isn't that the best alibi in the world? Absolutely. To be surrounded yes. by police while a crime is happening inside a house. I think I just think that he had some sort of involvement. Yes. It's very Whether he did it himself or hired someone, I always say, and I know everyone's going to say, oh, John always says this. It's true, though. When things look too good to be true and easy, when something's the easiest path to go down, yeah. I don't believe it. That's just true. me, though. It's when true. it's like, okay, she had mental health and all these other issues. She resented this person and that person. It's just setting you up for like, oh, this is easy. Oh, we got to go with it. Yeah. It's easy. No, I... I'm always on the flip side. Yes. So, I think that I'm going to have to say, I think Jeremy did it, and I think that they got it right. Okay. Not, well, I don't think that they, like, the process of getting him into jail was, mm-hmm. the prison was probably not good. But I think that he's guilty and he's in the right spot. Right. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. Well, we would love to hear what you think about it, because it is really interesting, and there is so many different directions that you can take. So, we would love, we always love hearing from you guys and you telling us what you think about what went down because this one's pretty confusing yeah let us know um what we want to do right now is take the time to thank all of our patreons uh we really really truly can never thank you enough for helping us try to make this better uh so we want to we're going to do the roll call pat mcdonald alicia reeves valerie castro lauren bacali sorry if i said that i'm sorry if i say anyone's name wrong i'm probably screwing this all up don't botch them up uh, Jisoo Kim, Anthony E. Clapper, Lisa White, Nicole Berg, Cara Devar, Beck Weisenecker, Linda Martinelli, Angie Rush, Lindsay C., 
Kelly Vandevere, Dana Connaughton, Shondell Young, Justin Tinkum, Kathy Rodnight, Susan Broaden, Kelly Wally, Kelly Whaley, or Wally, sorry, sorry Kelly, uh, Gemma Fry, Angie Gibson, Mike Sellis, Gwendolyn Hawk, Lucky Jean, Lynn Aya, Lynn Aya, sorry Lynn, uh, Daniel H, Alexis Olmes, Helen Foster, Laura L, Jordan, Tracy, Tracy Sumler, Jen Paradiso, Stacy, Lisa Pincher, Angela Stiles, Catherine Siciliano, Robin Vero, Jem, Elizabeth Gorman, Megan Wood, Natalie Favre, Joshua Smith, Ashley Nutt, Holly Parker, Catherine Pike, Pike, sorry, Catherine, uh, Tiffany Stallings, Jessica Brand, Kim Nixon, and Christine Solar. Thank you so much. And if you guys want to donate to Patreon, you can. You can do so at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Any type of donation would be highly, highly appreciated. And if not, just give us a like on any type of social media. We're True Crime Couple. And subscribe and give us a review on iTunes. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys.